Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I have just been out on vacation for a bit, and I came back to find you uh, absolutely raring to go <laughs> about coprophagia. That's right. Uh, the consumption of poop. Yeah. Which I figured is is ideal. Uh, you should be listening to this episode during the week of American Thanksgiving. It's a time when people eat too much and they yeah. eat uh, a lot of gray and brownish foods that are you know, too rich. They probably shouldn't be eating all of this mm-hmm. stuff, but they do anyway. So it's a perfect time to talk about poop eating. Uh, cram down the gullet with loving care uh, in the presence of one's family and <laughs> – and in-laws and all that. Now, before anybody turns us off, I, I do want to drive home that most of what we're going to be talking about in this episode uh, uh, relates to animals yeah. eating poop, as the title of the episode implies. At the very end, when when everyone's ready, we may talk a little bit about humans. Uh-huh. But first, we will deal with animals before we deal with the, the, the added complexities of human beings. Now, I'm sure the listeners out there are wondering the same thing I was. Uh, when, so I got back from vacation to find you super excited <laughs> about animals eating poop. And I was like, well, what got you going on this, Robert? Why did you fling yourself headlong into a pit of coprophagia for the week of Thanksgiving? Well, I originally had the idea to do it after watching a David Attenborough narrated uh, special uh, titled Spy in the Pod, Uh which is fun. It's a fun little show in which they have a remote control robot that's hanging out with elephants. And they briefly cover uh, coprophagia uh, practiced by elephant calves, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in this episode. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That, that puts a new spin on something that I'd largely just uh, dismissed as being essentially a, a, an act of both of, of human defilement but also abnormal animal behavior. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this sounds like kind of a grim topic, but certainly Thanksgiving is the time to do it. Um, <laughs> And I think we've talked about what, like poisonous foods and stuff like that. In yeah, the past. it kind of fits in with what we've done. And uh, oh, I, we're rerunning those, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're just, rerunning uh, at least two and three. Just mm-hmm. wait for Saturday. Yeah, yeah. but but any, anyway, in, in looking into the topic, then I realized, oh, this is a fascinating topic. And in the grand tradition of our episodes on cannibalism, uh, bestiality, and necrophilia, I think that there's a there's an awesome challenge in tackling something like this, something that is generally. Uh, considered very abnormal behavior for humans and looking at it from just the the boiled down, uh, no-nonsense animal side of things. Like what is it – how does it make sense within uh, the realm of animal biology and behavior and then how might might we apply that to the human scenario even? Yeah, the uh, the sort of like brute – chemical energy realities and and uh, uh, microbiological uh, ecology of the world. In in that kind of context, poop eating begins to come into focus as a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, as I uh, discussed in our, our Halloween 2018 episode, um, Horror Anthology Volume 1, um, there, there's an episode of Night Gallery in which a, a character is tricked into believing himself cursed to an irreversible transformation into a human earthworm. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And it's Leslie Nielsen. It is Leslie Nielsen. With an eye patch, like (laughs) shooting at walls. Yeah, a man with no fear who is eventually overcome uh, with fear of becoming a worm. And I said that one of the reasons we find this concept so horrifying is that it reduces us to our uh, alimentary track. 
We fear the worm at the heart of our being. And I think that we see that reflected in this episode as well. Hmm. Uh, anything that re- kind of reduces us to just our digestive system mm-hmm. uh, tends to have an innate horror to us. Because we're definitely going to be touching on the microbiome and all of this, the importance of gut bacteria, uh, which continuing research tells us just is, is far more important than, uh, than we ever imagined in the past. Totally. I mean, the worm dictates much of our health and even our mind. Yeah, we might get into this more as the episode goes on, but it is so fascinating that we have uh, such a such a deep disgust and revulsion for the products of the the human digestive system. Yeah, and it is just it's. I mean, a certain amount of it is is learned for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it too is that we're just we're not a coprophagic species, right? So we do not engage in this uh, routinely or as a part of of normal behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things, we're weird for not doing it. Yeah. While we tend to look at it the other way, we, we, if we see an animal consuming its own poop or the poop of another uh, creature, we think, oh, that is grotesque. How, how inhuman of this non-human creature? Well, just think about the, the sensory difference. Like the world must just look and smell very different if poop is delicious to you. Mm-hmm. Or, if, or even uh, without even getting into the idea of it's delicious or not, but if it is under any circumstances, Nutritional and useful, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so it it really turns things on its head. But let's talk about some of the reasons, like the the basic reasons that excrement uh, consumption might be desirable for an animal before we get into species-specific examples. Sure. Well, one is obviously going to be that uh, feces contain nutrients. I mean, by the time they come out of you, you have not gotten all the possible nutrition from it. That's right. I mean, a given digestive system does the best it can to break down the nutrients uh, it needs from a meal, and then it passes on the rest. Uh, but sometimes it can't digest everything of value in there, and this may require the creature itself or another scavenger to give all or part of the excrement a second pass, maybe even a third pass. Who knows? And also you have to consider that different species require different kinds of nutrients. Mm-hmm. So what might not be all that useful to you or you might possess in excess in order to excrete in waste might be something that is very useful to a different organism. Yeah, uh, and, and two other points here too that certainly we'll get into examples of are that that first of all, you definitely think of you can think of that poop sometimes as a as a first draft. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> not everything's finished, not everything's been been harvested, and then also um, think about what the uh, human digestive system does. It takes uh, energy in the form of, of plant uh, and or flesh. And it transforms that into a, a form that can be uh, absorbed and digested. And it, it doesn't all take place like in your throat. You know, right. it's, it's taking place at, at, uh, at various points uh, throughout a given creature's digestive system. Now, the, the next big reason, of course, relates to the microbiome. Yes, and this is huge. It's just sort of coming into focus, I think, in, in the past few decades – how enormously important the microbiome is, uh, how your gut flora is a, determines a lot about how your body works and who you are. Right. And the gut flora is uh, reflected not only in what's going on inside of you, but also in what is coming out of you. Yeah. So, you know, we, we don't like to think of ourselves as a worm, obviously, and we don't like to think of ourselves a, as an organism at all. But if we do, we tend to think of ourselves as a single organism. Right. Splendid, perfect ape. I am an animal. <laughs> I am one thing. Yeah, I'm the animal even. But of course, uh, there's more to us than all of that. We're a multicellular construction of maddening complexity. And we're literally host to an ecological community of commensal 
symbiotic and pathogenic microorganisms. Mm -hmm. We're learning more and more about the the role that our microbiome plays uh, every day, certainly, but it certainly plays an important role in digestion. And one's microbiome can make certain diets more advantageous and when out of balance can lead to illness. So for an extreme example, and one that I think ties in nicely with today's episode, just consider uh, fecal microbiota transplants, FMTs. This was all over the news and, um, you know, comedians had a big time with this. It sounds crazy. Yeah. Like a few years ago. Getting a poop transplant. Well, I feel like it certainly sounded crazy years ago. Yeah. But less so today. I feel like at this point, everybody's kind of like, oh, yeah, that that, that makes sense. Yeah. There are going to be situations where the the microbiome needs to be restored. Mm -hmm. And to do so, uh, a fecal transplant is sometimes the answer. But what's crazy is this, to a very large extent— is an example of the modern is basically the modern medical version of exactly what some animals are doing when they consume feces. <laughs> we just have a more elegant uh, and uh, you know modern uh, delivery system in place. If you want a more palatable analogy, just think about all of the uh, commercials for probiotic yogurt and stuff. Yeah, exactly. This is the the probiotic yogurt of the animal world. They can't go and uh, and 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 buy something at their local grocery store. Uh, they have a more old fashioned and effective means of taking care of the scenario. Now, these cases we've been talking about are cases where it's clearly part of an animal's natural life cycle to consume feces, to get something that it needs, Mm -hmm. whether that is the living microbes or some kind of nutrients. But there are also probably cases where coprophagia is a sign that something is wrong. Right. I mean, animals in captivity may engage in coprophagia. Puppy mill dogs, uh, for instance, uh, can learn to confuse dog food with feces due to the horrid conditions in which they are sometimes raised. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adult elephants may engage in it uh, due to captivity issues. And certainly, uh, as we may touch on at the very end of the episode, humans may engage in such behavior due to dementia. Uh, But again, uh, human coprophagia is is very rare. Mm -hmm. With the animals, I feel like once once we take into account the cases where it makes sense and is a part of their natural behavior, even the unnatural cases make a little bit more sense, you know? Because with the human, if a human consumes a feces, it is a human doing something that does not make sense within, uh, uh, at any other point in the human's life. Right. Whereas a, a dog, a puppy, say, uh, eating feces, is is doing something perhaps out of place or out of, uh, in a frequency that doesn't uh, uh, sit well with uh, their natural behavior, but is not uh, unheard of in their natural behavior. Well, maybe we should talk about the idea of coprophagia as a natural behavior of dogs. Let's do it. Because I so I can't speak directly to coprophagia, but I go out walking my dog. And it is clear to me, based on the directions that the dog pulls, Mm -hmm. that feces are incredibly interesting to him. Mm -hmm. He's very interested in getting up close to them. I've never let him linger there uh, with enough uh, time to see what he would do if the smelling were allowed to evolve into munching. I don't know if that would happen, Mm -hmm. but I've often suspected. Now, there could be other stuff going on there. For one thing, I think feces, probably a lot of these feces are dog feces. Right. And they probably contain a lot of uh, interesting sensory information smell-wise, like he can learn about the other dogs in the area by smelling the, the poop. I would assume. Right. Uh, so I mean, it's, it's probably worth, not it's worth just a food interest. Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering that dogs live in an entirely different sense world in regard to smell. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, but but I also do wonder, like, okay, if I wasn't there to pull him away, to <laughs> sort of gently drag him back on the leash, would he eat these feces? Well, I, I certainly know other dog owners who uh, have have to deal with, say, the dog trying to get into uh, get at the cat litter. Yes, uh, to eat uh, cat feces. Yes, uh, for example, and and we're we're about to touch on that as well. Uh, I feel like this is probably the example of coprophagia that that, that our listeners are most well acquainted with because mm-hmm. um, dogs are popular uh, pets and they do engage in this kind of behavior from time to time. And I imagine it can be quite disruptive um, of the sort of anthropomorphizing we often do with our pets, right? Mm-hmm. We teach them like we, – we treat them like little fur babies and if the fur baby – Give them human names. yeah. And if and, and even the food we pick out, the artificial, uh, uh, I mean, the the, the prepackaged uh, food that we purchase for our animals, I mean, those are foods that are marketed uh, to appeal to both dogs but also to humans, where the right. humans are like, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I would eat if I were a dog, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so the idea then of 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 consuming cat feces is is generally kind of repugnant, and we have to. I'm 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 guessing there probably comes a point in any kind of like dog ownership. I mean, I feel like it, there's certainly that point in cat ownership too, where you you really have to to remind yourself, oh yeah, this is an animal, and uh, mm-hmm. it's and it's living in a a strange uh, environment by hanging out in my house all or most of the time. But so when coprophagia occurs in dogs, I guess there are a couple of questions we could ask. First is how common is it, and second is why are they doing that? So first of all. It is a minority of dogs that eat poop, but not a tiny minority. A 2018 study in the journal Veterinary Medicine and Science by Hart et al. used a large survey of dog owners to look at specifically the question was about dogs eating dog feces. This study is not about dogs just eating poop in general or maybe other animals. Uh, And it found the following. About 77 percent of dog owners had never seen their dog eating poop. About 23% had seen their dog eating poop at least once, and about 16% had seen their dog eating poop six or more times. So about a quarter try it at least once uh, within view of a human. Roughly one in six dogs seem to eat poop a lot. And the lead author on that study was a veterinarian named Benjamin Hart who directs the Center for Animal Behavior at UC Davis. Uh, One thing you might notice if you Google like why is my dog eating poop – is you'll get websites of self-proclaimed dog experts of all kinds offering, uh, you know, many different answers. And speaking to Karen Brulliard in an article for the Washington Post, Hart said that the reason you get all these different answers is that nobody knows for sure why dogs eat poop. And they're basically all just guessing. Uh, fortunately, Hart says that this behavior, as gross as it might seem, is not usually dangerous to the dog's health. But does Hart have an answer about why dogs do it in the first place? Well, not a definitive one, but the authors of the 2018 paper do have a hypothesis, and it goes something like this. So modern dogs are descended from some ancestral variety of wolf. And wolves don't like poop within their own den. They they like to go out somewhere away from the den to do their stuff. And this is probably an evolved defensive behavior because the feces of wild wolves often contain the eggs of intestinal parasites like hookworms or pinworms or cocidia. And there, uh, there could be genes probably selecting for behaviors that would help prevent your brothers and sisters and other close relatives in the pack from catching your intestinal parasites. However, maybe sometimes you get a sick wolf, a sick wolf that's in the pack and is not able to leave the den in order to poop. 
In that case, it would actually make sense to eat poop within the den as quickly as possible since it usually takes a couple of days for parasite eggs in poop to hatch and become dangerous. So rather than let the poop in the den just sit there for a couple of days and become a potential biohazard, there could be a selection pressure favoring an impulse in wolves and and their dog descendants to immediately eat fresh poop within the den before it goes over the edge and becomes a risk. And this hypothesis is actually consistent with another thing that researchers have found about dog coprophagia, which was that in dogs who eat who do eat poop, more than 80% prefer poop that is fresh, no more than two days old. Now, on the other hand, uh, James Serpel, a professor of veterinary medicine at UPenn, was also quoted in that post piece. And Serpel says he finds that the, the den cleaning hypothesis for coprophagia, that, that could be plausible. That might be the case. But Serpel also points out that poop-eating dogs tended more often to be rated by their owners as generally greedy eaters. And that's a quote, greedy eaters. So we can't rule out the possibility that the cause is simply – Dogs with a strong scavenging instinct and some large and indiscriminate appetites looking for a bit of extra nutrition. Well, let's take a quick break. Uh, And then when we come back, we will explore uh, coprophagia among elephants. All right, we're back. So, Robert, it's time to talk about elephant coprophagia. So, obviously, there's nothing cuter than an elephant calf than a baby elephant, you know, it just like if someone shows me a YouTube video of a baby elephant doing pretty much anything, I'm going to watch it. I don't know. What about a screeching adult possum? Well, that's fun too. Uh, I also really like it when skunks uh, stand on their, their forelegs and, and wave their, their hinders in the air. Uh, I'm pretty much game for any animal video, but there's something about uh, an elephant calf, you know, it's oh, yeah. just so adorable. I think it has something to do with the uh, the large head with the kind of wispy hair. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? That triggers, I think, some of the the baby schema instinct. Like uh, that 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 part of the idea of the baby schema is that we are we are triggered with uh, you know like caregiving instincts when we see a creature with a large forehead and apparently large brain case mm-hmm. uh, because it looks kind of like the proportions of a human baby and baby elephants they, they strike me as being kind of like that right and then they start eating a little poop and we're not sure where we're how we're supposed to feel about the whole situation and, and this is in the wild mind you this is observed in the wild this is not just a zoo thing or anything um, so it leads us to ask, you know, what purpose could this serve? Well, the poop contains vital bacteria for breaking down plant cellulose. And by, by consuming some of its mom's dung, an elephant calf essentially gets that microbiome boost toward the consumption of food. So it's it's vital in them making that leap from just con, uh, just sustaining themselves on their mother's milk to actually uh, eating as a, an adult or semi-adult elephant. And then they're also going to get some nourishment out of the deal as well, as roughly two-thirds of an elephant's diet uh, ends up uh, coming out the other end undigested. Hmm. I guess this would be a diet heavy in rough plant matter. Oh, yeah. You know it. So they're they're eating – elephants obviously eat a ton. Yeah. They're eating a a lot of plant matter. Uh, But even their impressive uh, anatomy is only able to absorb so much of it. Right. Uh, By the way, uh, speaking of elephant poop – uh, it's pretty incredible as well due to its uh, seed distribution powers. This was kind of a, a tangent uh-huh. I happened upon in uh, my research. 
you know, we often forget this about this when we're considering the ecological impact of elephants and uh, and also, uh, you know, some of the ramifications of their dwindling numbers. Mm-hmm. But just consider the Asian elephant, uh, which has lost 95 percent of its habitat and 90 uh, percent of its population over the last century. Um, and these uh, stats come from On the Importance of Elephant Poop by uh, Sarah uh, Zelinsky, published in Science News. Uh, she points to a 2015 ecology publication by uh, Sekar et al. Uh, that points to three plant species in particular that have evolved to benefit from elephant seed distribution, including the so-called elephant apple, apple which I was not familiar with. Um, most animals can't actually eat the elephant apple because it's just so tough. And as with uh, wild guava, which is another example of this, it's far more likely to germinate if it passes through an elephant rather than, say, a cow or a buffalo. So key key here, of course, is the fact that the seed itself has to be undigested in order to actually germinate and grow new plants. Yeah, and there are, of course, a number of plants that depend on distribution methods like this, like mm-hmm. the uh, an animal eats the fruit and then poops the seeds out somewhere, often helping transport the seeds somewhere along the way. Yeah, I feel like this is something – this kind of comes back to how humans perceive poop. We we tend to think, again, with that, that sort of worm analogy, on one end of the worm is food, delicious food, and on the other end is just poop, just utter, utter loss. It's heaven you know? and hell. Yeah. You know, it's good and evil. But really, you're – and most animals would be able to attest to this had they the, the gift of, of reason and language uh, – that the poop still has a lot of good in it. Mm-hmm. It's not just this, uh, this transformation from like, uh, you know, 100 to zero. It's not heaven and hell. It's more like dinner and leftovers. And you might find, in fact, that the leftovers have already been conveniently cut up into pieces for you. Exactly. Uh, I should also point out that uh, this has been a practice among elephants and elephant kin for quite some time. Uh, there was a, a 42,000-year-old baby female mammoth uh, dubbed Liuba, and she was found to have adult mammoth poop in her digestive system. This seems to be just a part of how you, first of all, wean and then also uh, prepare the, the, the microbiota of the young elephant calf. Now, speaking of similar large mammals with also very cute babies, I was reading uh, just a little bit about the importance in the the uh, freshwater food chain of some rivers of uh, hippo poop. You know, hippos oh, yeah. do a similar thing. They, they come up out of the water to eat a whole bunch of, you know, rough plant matter, and then they retreat back into the water to just poop it all out, mm-hmm. just poop it all out straight into the water. Uh, and uh, this in, this ends up forming an important nutrition source for fish and other organisms downstream. But, of course, too much hippo poop can lead to problems like eutrophication where there's too many nutrients in the water. Hmm. I imagine this is one of, uh, one of the many challenges of keeping uh, hippos in an artificial environment is having to clean that water all the time. Oh, I was actually reading something about this. Uh, I wish I could remember the details. But in regards to uh, Pablo Escobar's hippos. Oh. Oh, yes, his uh, his hippos, which are what supposedly still running amok, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I also remember I've done some hippo poop research in the past. Um, actually, a fair amount of I guess just hippo anus uh, research because yeah. you've got it's like a special variety of leech that is only attracted to the hippo anus. Yeah, they also do that great thing with their tails yes, where the they spinning. Yeah, it's the whirling tail uh, poopy go round. Yeah, it's like a sprinkler system for yeah. fresh hippo feces. Well, now that we have that uh, image in your head, let's turn to what I think might be the most uh, uh, impressive uh, variety of coprophagic organisms. This would be the order Legomorpha or the uh, Legomorphs. 
bunny rabbits. Yeah, rabbits, hares, pikas, presumably the Easter bunny as well. I don't know. Now, I think I warned people when we mentioned this episode was coming up that they would be treated to an utter ruination of the cuteness of bunnies. But maybe instead, if you're open-minded enough, this will even expand your bunny cuteness appreciation into higher dimensions of consciousness. I, I think I'm more in that that uh, that area. Like when I first started looking into it, I was like, yeah, maybe this is a little gross. But then I'm like, no, this is amazing. Like I'm not sure I had any reason to find wonderment in bunnies and rabbits before, you know, mm. except if, if it's some sort of cool predation method by something that eats them. But no, this this is amazing what we're going to talk about here. And it forces you to rethink not only rabbits, but I think digestion itself. Okay, so what does normal rabbit feeding look like? What are they eating? What do they do? Oh, well, you know, they're eating carrots. <laughs> they're, oh, come on. If the cartoons have, have taught me correctly, no, they're, they're eating plants. They're yeah. eating a, 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 a diet of, with a lot of a lot of greens and, uh, and you know, on a, uh, the, the gardens of, uh, of English gardeners when they can get in there. Though funny side fact, I was actually just reading a paper that uh, mentioned some opportunistic carnivory of rabbits. Oh, not, well, not of rabbits, by rabbits. Oh, well, that would make sense given yeah. uh, everything we've learned about squirrels. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think this was an isolated case. It's not like this is super common, but it had at least been observed. Well, they've also been observed uh, plenty of times engaging in coprophagia. And it's actually a clever way by which they overcome some of the shortcomings of their digestive systems. Okay. So they're hindgut fermenters. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the bacterial fermentation that breaks down much of the plant matter they consume, it takes place in the hindgut. In rabbits, uh, this is in the cecum. And and so, yeah, you're having all of this like vital breakdown of the material taking place rather late in the process. Mm. And yet most of the nutrient uh, absorption takes place in the stomach and the small intestines, which is, of course, earlier in the process. So you have this weird situation where there's so much of the nutrients that they need are not really coming online until it's basically poop ready for depositing. So it's kind of like one of those movies where the plot doesn't make sense until everything comes together right at the end. Kind of, yeah. You kind of need to see it again after you've seen it to to put everything together. Exactly. Uh, It's also worth noting that we're dealing with creatures that are small gutted and, uh, and have very high metabolisms, which also plays into the scenario. So what's a, what's a rabbit to do? Why don't you simply run it all through again? You watch the movie again. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, but but they, it's more elegant than that. It's, it's more amazing than simply, okay, well, their, their poops still have a lot of nutrients, so they eat their poop again. Okay. No, they have two types of poop. Whoa, so they have poop toggling. Essentially, they produce what is called a, a cecotrope or night feces or night poops, if you will. Uh, while normal daytime feces is brown and hard, the night poops are dark, soft, and coated in mucus. Mm. And these, they eat up right away. Uh, generally, this is taking place, uh, I understand, like basically the early, uh, more, the early hours of the morning uh, and or, you know, the, the, the very uh, latest portion of the night, however you want to slice it. Thus, night poops. And they eat these up, up so swiftly that uh, I'm to understand that many pet owners don't even know it's happening. Uh, and in doing this, they absorb those vital nutrients on the second p- pass. In fact, if a rabbit doesn't eat its night night poops, that means there's something wrong with it. Oh, no. 
So according to uh, the <laughs> – Help doc, my rabbit <laughs> is not engaging in coprophagia. Exactly. I mean that's basically the reversal we see, uh, the reversal of human expectations for coprophagia. Mm-hmm. According to the 1991 Cornell veterinarian paper, uh, Coprophagia and Animals, a review by Suave and Brand, the, the night poops are, quote, swallowed like pills. And in the case of the pica, for instance, uh, the, the uh, night poops are essentially a mix of partially digested moss and gut bacteria, and it's actually six times more nutritious than the moss itself. Whoa. So It's almost like cooking increases exactly. the nutritional profile of food. Well, we've talked about it from the human perspective. Cooking is the externalization of digestion. It's technological digestion. Yeah. So, yeah, this is, this is cooking via the pica gut. They also point out that young rabbits begin eating their mother's night poops uh, before moving on to the consumption of their own. So, again, Mm -hmm. we see this kind of weaning process similar to what we saw in in elephants. And uh, this also supplies nitrogen, protein, sulfur, and vitamins. And up to 100% consumption of night poop may be necessary uh, for these creatures to intake adequate levels um, um, of these substances. Okay, so now that we have expanded your mind about (laughs) cute bunnies, I I assume it'll be less of a leap for people to find out that rats consume feces, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like this should be a no-brainer. Like, really, I think people are going to be surprised that they don't eat as much poop as uh, as rabbits do. Uh But a single rat consumes a varying amount of its own dung. We're talking between 5 and 50% of its own fecal output. And as with rabbits, we see some key nutrients uh, in here made absorbable uh, via that first round of digestion. And it's a way for them to hit target absorption levels, uh, prevent them from eating their own poop, and young rats experience a depression in growth rate of about 15 to 20 percent. Oh, wow. And it's especially useful as a way for them to make up for shortfalls in their natural dietary uh, uh, nutrients. So whereas human adults tell human children, like, don't drink coffee, that'll stunt your growth, Mm -hmm. your adult rats would tell their, their rat pups, don't not eat your poop, that'll stunt your growth. Exactly. Uh, It's also been observed to boost uh, the rat's uh, microbiota performance. And in fact, uh, thiamine is produced in the rat's intestinal tract and is not absorbed. They have to eat it uh, then to pick it up. Hmm. So if rats are are permitted from eating their own feces, such as uh, via a laboratory tail cup, uh, you'll have to add vitamin K to their diets to make up for it. And similarly... Uh, they require B-complex if not allowed to ingest their own feces. And with rats, just as we saw with, uh, with, with rabbits, uh, it begins with the young eating the mother's feces uh, with the pheromonal encouragement of the practice. Uh, maternal rat feces contains high levels of uh, deoxycholic acid that's uh, lacking in pre-weaned uh, weaning rats. And this is a steroid that promotes immune development in the intestinal tract. So part of what you're saying is that when you find rat poop in the back of a kitchen cabinet or something, there actually probably was originally more rat poop there and they just – they took some of it along with them. Uh, I'm not sure on that. You know, I'm not (laughs) sure when they're – I don't think it was really reflected in the, this main uh, uh, Suave and Brand paper, like when they're eating the poop, if this is only occurring like mostly close to home or if it's going to occur in your cabinet potentially. Mm-hmm. Now, another animal that is famous for uh, wallowing in its own filth, of course, is ye olde porcine. That's right, uh, the pig. And I, this is another animal where people would be like, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. A pig would probably eat its own poop. Um, adult pig poop is rich in iron, and piglets will, according to Suave and Brand, consume about 20 grams of uh, maternal feces per day. And this plays a role in preventing iron deficiency anemia in the piglets. Now, beyond uh, the realm of, of pigs, uh, 
It's also been seen in non-human primates with uh, B12 and fatty acids coming into play for some monkeys, uh, but it does not serve as a major source of nutrients in non-human primates. Uh, we'll come back to non-human primates in a bit. In horses, however, uh, between the second and fifth week after birth, a uh, foal will apparently eat part of the mother's feces, and it also occurs in mature horses that have low-protein diets. I'd like to just read a, a quote from that Suave and Brand paper, actually. Okay. They say, quote, Coprophagia is essential for some species of animals, providing nutrients which contribute to growth, development, and maturation of the animals. The practice must be considered in the interpretation of comparative investigations done with coprophagous and non-coprophagous animals. The impact of coprophagia in laboratory studies using rodents and rabbits could seriously influence test results, especially in the fields of nutrition, microbiology, pharmacology, and toxicology. So what they're saying is science needs to take way more poop eating into account. Basically, yeah. And this is something I saw reflected in some other papers I looked at where they said there's just – there hasn't been enough research on some species and their, their poop eating. Uh, I mean certainly rabbits uh, have received a lot of attention. But, uh, but this, is a, this is an interesting point about especially uh, lab mice and rats mm -hmm. that we're studying to understand so many things about, uh, about human physiology. Now, while we're on the subject of animals that are probably uh, less surprising to find out uh, that they that they engage in some poop eating, obviously insects and invertebrates of various kinds are going to figure big into this kind of picture. In fact, I remember I, I had a biology teacher once mm -hmm. who was talking about his uh, expeditions to the jungles of South America, and he talked about how you know in the morning if you if you were out in the rainforest and you would you would venture out away from the camp to uh, release a large bowel movement after the coffee hour, mm -hmm. uh, you could basically sit there and watch it become a chemical beacon for invertebrate forest life huh. uh, where, where slowly think all these insects and different kinds of species would just descend on it from all around. And uh, that image has stuck with me ever since. I would kind of like to see that. Yeah, it's, far, it's a far different scenario in our urban environment where if you go out and, and poop on the sidewalk in the morning. Uh, you may I, attract <laughs> attention. But, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but may, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm joking. But I mean it's not like we don't have uh, a lot of insect life in the city. Yeah, I guess we do. Yeah. I mean uh, you will certainly see flies on poop. I mean yeah. it's a cliche for a reason. Now, uh, one of the most impressive consumers of, of poop in the, uh, the insect world is, of course, uh, the dung beetle. These are amazing animals. They are. And, uh, and yeah, I think we, we tend to be cool with the, the dung beetle. I mean, the dung beetle is kind of funny because of what it's doing, uh, especially if you're watching a, a variety of dung beetle that rolls the poop away. How come dung beetles don't seem as gross to us as the flies and maggots that land on poop? I think part of it is that they're generally, we're generally when we're watching videos of it, we're watching dung beetles that are rolling away like animal poop. An yeah. yeah, animal poop and specifically herbivore poop, which yes. tends to be far nicer poop. Like really, if you have to – if I had to deal with a bunch of poop, mm -hmm. like just to scoop it, uh, you know, give me, give me horse poop yeah, every it, day of the week. It looks more like mud with some hay in it. Right. And Basically, it is. Yeah. I mean, just think back to the elephant poop example and all the, all the stuff that is still in there un, unabsorbed. But um, we have a lot of different types of dung beetles. Uh, I, I've seen the number – I've seen it as low as 5,000, but I've also seen it cited as like 8,000 different species of dung beetles. And they can be found on every continent except Antarctica. 
Uh, they thrive in numerous environments as well, not just grasslands. So mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we have a false idea of dung beetles just based on seeing like one or two segments in a nature documentary. Yeah. Uh, and they, given their name implies, they subsist almost exclusively on the excrement of other organisms, uh, though they can sometimes feast on carrion, leaf litter, mushrooms, and decaying fruit. Some of the species famously roll balls of dung away from the pile. <laughs> Everybody's seen this, uh, like the, the image of them pushing it like a boulder, like somebody in Tartarus, you know. Oh, yeah, because that's one of the things. They make, they make a beeline. They make yeah. a straight line. And they use some incredible strength and also some, some fairly incredible navigation uh, uh, techniques to, to really pull this off. Uh, because they have to be fast. A dung, as we've discussed, loses its nutritional punch rather quickly. Uh, so it has to – the ones that actually roll it away, they have to roll it away in a straight line, get it somewhere where they can deal with it. And they might have to deal with competing uh, dung beetles on the way. Now, you might not know the answer to this, but why is it that dung loses its nutritional value over time? Is it, uh, is it the microbes in it that are consuming a lot of the nutrients? I think that is the case. Yeah. I mean, and it's almost like the the dung is alive and dying, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, it has to be uh it has to be dealt with rather quickly. Um now I, I mentioned that, you know, varieties that roll their dung. Uh while rollers are certainly the most famous, there are also tunnelers. Ooh. So they tunnel down into the poop. And then there are dwellers that dwell atop the poop. Um, so these are the king three. King of the poop mountain. Yeah, basically. There's king of the mountain. There's king under the mountain. And then there's he who rolls poop away from the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the three categories. The atlas of poop. Yes. Now, um, according to, I believe it was Dr. John um, uh, Capinera, a 1.5 kilogram or 3.3 pound load of elephant dung was observed to attract 16,000 dung beetles who ate, buried, and rolled it away in less than two hours. Less than two hours? Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that's, that's difficult to imagine. But, you know, if you have an, an entire swarm of dung beetles. I, don't, I almost don't believe that. Two hours? <laughs> All by insects? Well, well maybe we'll, we'll check that in QA and make sure that holds true. No, I'm sure. I believe it. I believe it. All right. Well, uh, according to uh, the San Diego Zoo, the average domestic cow drops dung like 10 to 12 times per day. And uh, each uh, pat of poop can produce up to 3,000 flies within two weeks. In some parts of Texas, dung beetles bury about 80% of cattle dung. So just imagine what life would be like without dung beetles around to, uh, to consume the poop. Well, Robert, that sounds like a messy planet. It would be. But thank, uh, thank God for the dung beetles. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss pitcher plants. All right, we're back, uh, this time with a a non-animal feces consumer. Well, it's much less surprising, I guess, uh, than animals eating poop to hear of uh, plants benefiting from poop because obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. you you could think about fertilizer and stuff like that. There there are nutrients in poop that can sink into the soil and nourish the roots of a tree or something like that. But I want to talk about a more direct kind of fecal gobbling uh, by plants. And that would be, of course, the case of pitcher plants. Now, we've discussed pitcher plants on the show before. These are generally carnivorous plants with these pitcher cup-shaped leaves that form a pit trap. And the general predation strategy of these carnivorous plants uh, goes like this. So you have a delicious-smelling chemical lure, some kind of nectar or something, to attract insects to your pitcher. 
and then the insects land and try to feed or at least try to investigate, but the edges of the pitcher are slippery and then the insect falls into a pool of liquid down inside the cupped leaf. Now, once in the liquid, the insect dies and then the body is digested by enzymes down in the pit and the plant, of course, feeds. Now, this is often especially important because the pitcher plant needs those arthropod bodies as a source of nitrogen, which is a crucial nutrient for them and which is often scarce in the kinds of soil where the pitcher plants tend to grow, which can be like swampy soil or like heath soil, just not very nitrogen rich. But a curious thing has happened to some pitcher plants. Some seem to have evolved a taste for poop. Now, I was reading a great piece in uh, National Geographic by uh, Ed Young, one of our favorite science writers, about the pitcher plant Nepenthes hemsleana. And so there were some researchers that uh, Ed was talking about. One was Omar Graf from the University of Brunei, uh, Jerusalem, And he noticed something odd about this species of plant, Nepenthes hemsleana. It was sort of low on fluid compared to other pitcher plants and it also didn't release obvious chemical attractants for insects and it tended to have about seven times fewer insects than the pitchers of other species. Now, instead of insects in the pitchers, there were often bats. There were a a type of bat known as Hardwick's woolly bat or Caravula hardwicki uh, roosting, sometimes roosting as families inside the plants. And so Graf worked together with Caroline and Michael Schoner from the University of Greifswald to investigate the apparent mutualism between bats and pitcher plants. Obviously, there's some kind of relationship going on here. What is it? You've got big pitchers that bats can fit inside, very little fluid, very few insects. But, of course, the pitchers were full of, you guessed it, poop. Ah. Bat feces, also known as guano, which is, incidentally, a great source of nitrogen. Now, the researchers found that the plants were getting so much nitrogen from the guano that they didn't need to kill nearly as many insects. So here's the question. How did the pitchers attract the bats? Because bats navigate mostly by echolocation. They determine shapes in their surroundings by making sounds and then listening for those sounds to bounce back off the objects in the environment, forming a 3D sonic map. And there are similar shaped other species of pitcher plants in the forest. And there's just a lot of stuff in the forest to sort of like muck up your view. So how did the Hemsleana plants attract the bats? The researchers mentioned before uh, teamed up with Ralph Simon of the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg who helped out by bringing along a robotic bat head. And so Ed writes, quote, The team found that the back wall of N. Hemsleana, the bit that connects its lid to its main chamber, is unusually wide, elongated, and curved. It's like a parabolic dish. It strongly reflects incoming ultrasound in the direction it came from and over a large area. Other pitcher plants that live in the same habitat don't have this structure. Instead, their back walls reflect incoming calls off to the sides. So, as the woolly bats pepper the forest with high-pitched squeaks, the echoes from in Hemsleana should stand out like a beacon. So the researchers also tested this apparent function by modifying some of the plants sort of hidden among shrubbery in a tent full of bats to see if it would change the rate at which the bats were attracted to the plants. And it did. In a paper published in Current Biology in 2015, uh, the authors found that if you took one of these plants and you sort of amputated its reflective surfaces, the bats couldn't find it as quickly. And Ed writes, quote, and when given a choice, they mostly entered pitchers with natural unalterable 
unaltered reflectors. So here's a case where the plant has evolved to instead of uh, specializing in capturing, trapping, and, and eating insects, it specializes in providing a good home for bats to poop in it. <laughs> And even changing its own shape over the generations to become a better attractor of bats because it reflects the sounds they make better. Now, this is not the only pitcher plant that has come to specialize in receiving poop as a, as a main part of its diet. There's another pitcher plant called uh, Nepenthes loewi that does something similar by functioning as a kind of delicious toilet for tree shrews in Borneo. Uh, the young versions of this plant tend to trap ants and other insects like a normal pitcher plant would. But the more mature plants, which grow up higher in the air on vines and other plants, they attract tree shrews with sweet nectar. And while the shrews are perched on the plant licking the nectar, the shrews poop inside the plant, providing crucial nitrogen to the plant. And in fact, uh, the mature aerial plants really don't trap many insects at all. They just want poop. That's all. It's just tree shrew come and poop in me. And they've evolved to specialize in this. While most carnivorous pitcher plants have these slippery rims I mentioned, right? You know, they want a slippery side on the pitcher so that the insects fall in. The mature uh, uh, plants of the lowy species don't have a slippery rim. Instead, they've got a, a rim that the tree shrew can stand on safely and poop comfortably. After all, like you wouldn't design a human toilet with like a lubricated <laughs> seat, right? You, no. you don't want people slipping around. So I also found another more recent study by uh, the same authors of that study Ed Yong wrote about in his Nat Geo piece but with some other authors in uh, Journal of Ecology in 2017 called Ecological Outsourcing, a pitcher plant benefits from transferring pre-digestion of prey to a bat mutualist. Hmm. Uh, so they point out here that you know mutualism is a type of symbiosis between two species in which both species gain a net benefit from the interaction. Uh, classic examples would be like animals and their gut flora. The gut flora gets something out of it. You get something out of it. But also like flowering plants and pollinating insects where the insect might get nectar and the plant might get pr reproductive material spread around. You both get a, a net positive. And so the authors point out that lots of ecologists believe that a lot of times mutualism seems to evolve when a service that an organism originally had to perform for itself could be done better by another species. And the authors refer to this as, quote, ecological outsourcing. So an example would be a plant that used to have some, you know, very ineffective way of spreading pollen around, but then insects began spreading the pollen in a much more efficient and targeted way. But of course, how would you test that it evolved this way? Well, the authors came up with a way to test this using that relationship I mentioned earlier between the uh, pitcher plant Nepenthes hemsleana and Hardwick's woolly bat, the Caravula hardwicki. And so the pitcher plant houses the bat. Like we said, the bat poops inside. The plant gets necessary nitrogen. And the authors write about their method, quote, We measured the benefits of ecological outsourcing by comparing survival, growth, photosynthesis, and nutrient content of N. hemsleana plants fed with bat feces to those fed with arthropods. To investigate the costs of such outsourcing processes, we repeated the experiment with the closest relative, Nepenthes rafflesiana, uh, that is not adapted to digest bat feces. So the authors found that hemsleana plants uh, fed on a diet of poop had better survival, growth, and photosynthesis than plants of the same species that were given only insects instead. Quote, on average, plants covered 95% of their nitrogen demand from feces under strong nutrient deprivation. But what about those non-poop adapted species of plant that got to try out a poop diet in this experiment? 
the authors write, quote, Despite uh, Rafflesiana's higher arthropod capture rate, feces covered a large part of this species' nutrient demand as well, suggesting low costs for outsourcing. And then uh, finally, the authors write, quote, Outsourcing prey capture and digestion to the mutualism partner seems to be a beneficial strategy for Inhem's liana. It may explain the evolutionary trend of several carnivorous plants to lose their carnivorous traits while increasing their attractiveness to mutualistic partners. On a much broader scale, we propose that ecological outsourcing could be one of the major drivers for the evolution and maintenance of mutualisms. So in other words, you can think of the bats as providing a kind of pre-digestion service for the pitcher plan. The bat eats the nitrogen-rich food source, breaks it down, then releases it into the plant's mouth. It makes sense, right? Why eat the insects directly when you can eat this byproduct of the insects that the bat eats? Yeah. And it also makes me think about, uh, you know, when we've talked about the possible origins of predation, say, in the Cambrian period, like Mm -hmm. if... uh, Organisms, we don't know that this happened, but just if it's possible that predation began when scavenging or organisms eating sort of like dead other animal matter just sort of transitioned to live animals. Yeah. Uh, this could be a sort of like backward transition of that kind, right? Yeah, I think so. And and again, it also forces us to rethink uh, what is going on in digestion, what is going on in the uh, transformation from food to poop. Totally. All right. So. I want to come back to humans again. So at this point, yeah, if you don't want to hear about uh, human coprophagia, um, maybe you want to check out for this episode. But hopefully at this point we've demystified it a bit uh, and you're ready to hear a little bit about humans and also some of our, um, our, our ape relatives. So, of course, human coprophagia has long been the subject of various uh, curses, insults, and, of course, art. I think we can all think to, to various um, – uh, works of, of literature or cinema uh, that, uh, that that drag out coprophagia, it's especially as I've seen it popular in like 1970s cinema, especially yeah. avant-garde stuff where they want to, I guess, say something like really like stark and disturbing about uh, the nature of human existence. Yeah, it's the spirit of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of, of, of poop eating in that for sure. Um, but really, I mean, any amount of poop eating tends to stand out in a work and, and, and you run the risk of it overshadowing everything else that you're attempting to do. Right. A couple of uh, cinematic uh, high points, low points uh, that come to mind in this area. There's, of course, uh, uh, the scene in John Waters' Pink Flamingos in which uh, the actor Divine uh, eats dog feces. Yeah. And uh, I later uh, heard a, an interview uh, from him uh, talking with uh, Fresh Air's Terry Gross about it. He talked about like calling the doctor afterwards and claiming that uh, a child had eaten dog feces and he wanted to see if it, you know, if, if the child was going to get sick and the doctor was like reassuring him that it would, you know, it'd probably be okay. <laughs> um, and another great scene, of course, is the scene in Caddyshack where Bill Murray's Ugh. character uh, retrieves the suspected feces, which is actually a candy bar uh-huh. uh, from the bottom of the pool and, uh, and, and holds it up, sniffs it and then bites into it. But anyway, the, the point here is that for humans, it's largely something that's relegated to the realm of madness, perversion, and horror. It's also been done as an act of protest. Uh, and indeed, it's, it's considered an extraordinary disorder of human behavior when it occurs. It, we're not like those animals that sometimes eat poop for nutritional deficiency reasons. Right. Our closest ape relatives don't benefit from the act as other animals do. Chimps have been observed to do it in laboratory conditions probably due to dietary deficiencies or captivity-induced behavioral problems. 
Now, as for gorillas, I was reading a bit about this in the primate conservation paper, uh, coprophagia and intestinal parasites, implications to human uh, habituated mountain gorillas. This was by Grassic and uh, Cranfield from 2003. And they wrote that coprophagia is uh, commonly observed in mountain gorillas. Uh, adults sometimes eat their own feces following defecation or the old feces of other gorillas, which is interesting. They didn't, I don't think they really went into, all this, into this all that much, but it, it comes back to the whole freshness thing. I wonder why eat the old uh, poop. But anyway, yeah. infants sometimes eat feces of other gorillas or other animals. And uh, it's considered normal, and it's been argued that the, the gut flora explanation is likely valid here. Uh, it's thought that uh, their uh, herbivore diet likely benefits from some level of symbiont seeding. Uh, however, with this sort of practice comes the possibility of parasites. And indeed, a 1983 survey identified 41 species of endoparasites from captive and wild gorillas, 29 of which can be transmitted by coprophagia. However, uh, they also stress that coprophagia has been, quote, generally neglected in medical parasitology except in mentally retarded people with behavioral aberrations such as coprophagia or coprophilia uh, requiring institutionalization. Again, we're clearly a non-coprophagia species. It isn't a normal part of our behavior, so it's not something we're evolved to do with much proficiency. I was also reading an International Journal of Psychological and Brain Sciences article titled Coprophilia Feces Lust in the Forms of Coprophagia, uh, Copriospheres, Scatolia, and Plastering in Dementia Patients, Our Thoughts and Experience, uh, which is a good paper, but certainly... Um, <laughs> doesn't it's a, sound like a fun read. It's not exactly a fun read, but it's, it was insightful. It's, it's not the first thing you want to read during your coprophagia uh, research. Uh, but they pointed out that in primates, uh, the, the, cons the consumption of feces may serve, quote, as a behavioral adaptation that provides animals access to energy and nutrients and may be an important nutritional source for older and or dentally impaired individuals during the dry season. Dentally hmm. impaired meaning they just don't have the teeth to handle certain foods. Oh, I didn't even think about that, the idea that uh, – for some animals, feces could be just an easier food source. It like is, it's something yeah. to fall back on when you can't maybe chew up the normal kind of stuff you would be eating. It is pre-digested, like yeah. we said. Uh, and, and then they suggest the following, quote, Dementia patients have a diminished mental capacity that constantly is being reduced towards a capacity analog to a newborn's, possibly acquiring all primordial instincts. Furthermore, as nutritional decrease in the amount eaten, which is oligophagia, the, the eating of only a few foods, uh, together with the loss of weight is probably the most common disturbance in dementia, uh, something that could lead in a search for supplementary food sources. Hmm. So they point out that uh, – they also point out that dementia can also result in hypersexuality and uh, sexually disinhibited uh, 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 behaviors, which could also entail the sort of activity. Uh, they're also known to make and throw uh, coprospheres in the manner of other primates, uh, which is also curious. So poop balls. Poop balls, right. Um, they reject the idea, though, that it is linked directly to dietary deficiency. But I feel like this this is putting like a, a weird and interesting spin on it, like the idea that it is in dementia patients, which seems to be the the the, the only area where it really occurs, that it is kind of this primordial return to some like very base uh, like primate activities. Well, that uh, somehow you – it may be a result of like instincts that are activated but normally uh, inhibited. Yeah, yeah. So uh, – but again, they they say that this is an area that really needs, needs more research. Mm -hmm. um, 
they said there's actually there's not a lot of hope for dementia patients exhibiting this sort of behavior uh, and that more study is needed, but of course also more empathy. There's apparently a tendency in, uh, in institutional environments to provide less care to such individuals. And uh, if there's hope to be had, they say it's through empathy and interventions of uh, psychological and pharmacological nature. Yeah, I can certainly see how that could be the case. Like it, it's an unfortunate case where like a, a very gross symptom makes it actually harder for a person to get the care they need just because like the, the people who would be providing the care find it repulsive or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, because they're also going to be, they're going to be dirtier because of this activity. It just, yeah. and it, and then you end up invoking all these human taboos, which uh, even in a clinical environment with trained professionals, uh, you know, like in in the best of con- conditions, I can see where it would definitely be. Uh, it could definitely prove a challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, to close out with something a little more fun from that paper. Um, they did point out that, quote, in ancient Greece during the orgies dedicated to the god Dionysus, bizarre erotic fetishes were in constant use. Many depictions of people defecating in clay pots during an orgy prove the narcissistic erotic uh, deviation in ancient cultures. Hmm. Sounds almost judgmental. Right. But the, they included some images of this uh, in, the, in the paper. That paper had a, had a lot of images, uh, uh-huh. a, lot of, uh, a lot of photos. Um, but, uh, again, I feel like human coprophagia, uh, though certain, certainly um, a tricky subject, even it makes a lot more sense having looked at how it works uh, within uh, the normal behaviors of many animals. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have a question, actually. Yes. Is dung vegetarian? Well, and a lot of the dung we've talked about is is herbivore dung. Yeah, that would be a follow-up question, I guess. Does it matter whether the dung is the dung of a carnivore of or of an herbivore? It is an animal product mm-hmm. in a way. Well, I did not – Or I guess maybe the question would be is dung vegan? <laughs> well, I feel like – I don't feel like we really discussed any carnivores in this episode. I mm-hmm. mean everything was at least an omnivore if not uh, an herbivore. Um, yeah, I didn't come across any research involving coprophagia among carnivores. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. Um, you, you, I didn't see any articles about cats or big cats or uh, pack hunters. So uh, I don't know. That's that's a that's an interesting question to leave out on. I'm not saying we're going to come back for uh, coprophagia part two, but uh, but but it is worth uh, worth looking at. Well, here's a question. To start with on part two. Is dung paleo? <laughs> I don't know. In some respects, maybe it is. That, that, uh, maybe so. Maybe so. All right. So there we have it. We're going to go ahead and close it out here. Uh, obviously, a lot of people are going to have some comments on this, um, probably related to your pet uh, rabbits, your pet dogs, uh, maybe farm animals. Your pet gorilla. Pet yeah. gorillas. Uh, maybe you, uh, you professionally have some sort of uh, insight here. Maybe you've worked with dementia patients. Uh, you know, I've. Uh, we're we're uh, up for any kind of insight into this topic that you, the listener, may have to share with us. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find the tab for our store where you can go and buy some cool merchandise, including some of the new uh, uh, squirrel merchandise that uh, is coming out for Thanksgiving. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, uh, to uh, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen 
happened from, how you found out about the show, all that stuff, you can email us directly at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.